You're listening to my viewfinder. I release a new episode every week on Friday. Hit that subscribe button and don't miss out on any of these awesome conversations. My first podcast, so my friend Kyle introduced me. He had he used to have his own studio. He still does studio space because he's uh, doing Media Lab. But the whole time, the whole I kept doing this out of a habit. <laughs> and apparently, his studio mics picked up the whole thing. And so, in order. <laughs> In order for us not to have to do the interview again, every time I speak, it keeps cutting in and out. And uh, <laughs> so I learned the hard way that uh, apparently microphones pick everything up. It's fucking annoying. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> puts the pens away. Yeah. So I do have a clicky pen because I couldn't find anything, but I'm going to try to be disciplined about it. <laughs> Plus, uh, my mic's definitely not as good as his, so we'll just pray for the yeah. best. I had another one where I was, I had this, the, I, uh, headphone case and i was fiddling with it just out of nerves but we'll see <laughs> yeah it's funny all the stuff you don't you don't really think about my viewfinder is a proud member of the alberta podcast network locally grown community supported today i want to tell you about atv's new podcast the future of join todd hirsch atv's vice president and chief economist as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future explore how our economy and communities not only brace for change but embrace the opportunity it creates from the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself the future of helps understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get to the tomorrow we want featuring two episodes each month plus bonus episodes the future of includes interviews with top community and business leaders from alberta and around the world subscribe to the future of in the apple store google play spotify and everywhere podcasts are found and connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing the future of at atb.com so julia hynotsky um welcome Thanks. <laughs> uh, we've never met, I don't think, and, except digitally. So uh, I thought maybe I should learn more about where you come from. Uh, are you Albert? Like, are you from Calgary? Yeah, Calgary, born and raised. And uh, I don't know. I mean, tell me a little bit about, let's call it uh, your journey into becoming an artist. Uh, you know, where does it come from uh, in a shorthand, I suppose? But. Um. Well, I, I grew up in a really uh, culture kind of focused family. So we, um, my dad was a <clears throat> was a welder, but also an artist. So we were always kind of surrounded by art supplies and people making art and uh, going to galleries and uh, museums and stuff and music and all that kind of stuff. So I've always been kind of immersed in it, I think. And we were we were lucky as kids. I always tell people we were allowed to use all the grown up art supplies. So um, so yeah, we've my I, when I say we, I mean my sister and I. We've always been into it. Um, and when I when I finished school, I didn't I didn't go straight to art school. I got a French degree first and was teaching for a little while. And um, yeah, and then so I went back to art school a little bit later um, in life, mostly because I got into doing photos when I was traveling. Like I, after I finished my degree, I went to, I lived in France for a year to teach English. And I just kind of, I mean, you're in France, you're taking photos of everything, right? And I had some kind family members who I guess probably saw maybe a glimmer of something, talent perhaps, and encouraged me. And then that's sort of what I decided to get into. So I went back to school specifically for photography. And then once I finished, I was working you know looking to do some commercial photography and 
working as an assistant and stuff, but um, I got I got pretty disinterested in the commercial side of stuff pretty quickly, I think. And so, yeah, so for the past, I guess, probably five years really seriously, um, I've been working on my visual art practice and trying to make that my full-time thing, so. You know, what is, in your mind, the separation between commercial art and professional visual arts? Mm, well, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of crossover for sure. I don't think there's like a hard line where it stops being one and starts being the other. Um, when I when I think of commercial photography, I'm thinking of stuff like advertising and maybe editorial stuff. But even with that, I mean, for sure, there's the creative side of it that, you know, leans on the ideas that you get from art, I think. So I don't think it really rules it out. But I think nowadays, especially visual art is really about taking your own ideas that you want to express or the things that you're interested in and finding a way to make make something that that conveys those ideas do you think i mean so as far as the ideas then that drive art I, so i don't know i mean i you know what does it mean i suppose to be creative or artistic you know and is it a unique <laughs> thought process that artists have uh to re, let's say recontextualize or contextualize things in our case visually or I don't know. It's it's interesting to me to, I mean, for example, bring up that commercial art, uh, sorry, commercial practice can be and likely is influenced by art. I always think uh, in the last, you know, probably 150 years that the opposite is also true. <laughs> and that um, I like to call it corruption because uh, I like to pick <laughs> fights, but the, uh, the corruption of art, it comes from its sell saleability or whatever the right word is, sellability. So, um, you know, you have experience sort of in in both. Um, you know, is there something there that I don't know that you have an opinion about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an interesting interesting question. Like, I I think there's <clears throat> there's a side that that would say that as soon as money is involved, you're sort of sullying the whole practice. And but you know, really, if you think about art for much of its, I guess, recorded history. It's been for money, like it's been patrons paying to have their walls decorated, essentially. And then I think it's maybe really only recently that we've gotten to this point where it's like, no, art has to be a pure pursuit um, and money corrupts it. So I don't know. I mean, I think being realistic, if we're going to keep making art, we have to make money. Um, and so I think some people resolve that by making money doing other things or related things like teaching and not making any money off their art. I think for myself, I don't mind kind of, you know, putting a few different pieces together. I'm happy to sell, sell my art. I'm happy to get grants to make art, which I guess is sort of taxpayer funded, publicly <laughs> funded art. Um, you know, and, and do other stuff too. So I've, I've taught in the past. I, I do I do food styling and prop styling on the you know commercial side of stuff and I still shoot commercially but yeah I think the the reality of it is you have to you have to eat you know you have to live somewhere um, and you know if if it doesn't if it doesn't grate too much then if you can make your money doing like making what you want to make like making exactly what you want to make if you can make money doing that then I think for me I that's that's the route I want to go I'm I'm happy with that. <laughs> I like that you brought up that this idealism of art for art's sake is actually more recent and uh, sounds like almost uh, an antithetical or at least a response to capitalism where 
you know, maybe we're pushing back. Um, yeah, even the term sellout is a fascinating thing. Um, okay. uh, yeah, in reflection, the idea of uh, commissioned work or patronage, uh, yeah, is definitely central to the art, at least that we have in recorded history. I mean, who knows um, um, yeah. what beautiful pieces might have been thrown out. But um, do you find that that sort of structure influences even how you approach what you want to make? Um, mm. It definitely can. I, I sometimes uh, catch myself thinking, oh, I should make another piece like this because that's been selling well, you know, but I'm also really, really careful to kind of try and stop that as soon as I start thinking like that, because it's, um, that's not how I made that first piece that's selling well. I wasn't thinking about, you know, what colors sell really well, or, you know, I was just, I was making something that I thought was really cool. And so I, I definitely feel that that tension because I don't want to start making stuff. I don't want to find myself in the situation where I'm sitting around trying to guess what color trends are coming next year or, you know, to be the major guiding principle for my artwork. So it's it's a fine line because, like I said, I want to sell my work, but you also don't want I don't want to get to the point anyways where I'm where that's the first thing that I think of when I when I kind of set out to, to make something. Um, we, I thought when we uh, when we first we would spend some time on grants and things but you know just so that this doesn't steer into uh, only about money it's interesting that you brought up uh, wanting to uh, how did you phrase it sort of uh, stay in the original moment that created the original piece whether it was sellable or not um, and just a brief sort of scan of your work it is very varied but there's a strong um, pl- plant-based theme uh, so, uh, you know, maybe you could uh, give me an idea of what it is that drives you to make photographs. Why do you like rain? Why do you like uh, all the... Why am I asking why? We talked about how I shouldn't ask why. But, uh, <laughs> it's um, a good, no, it's a good yeah. question. Where does that come from? I I guess I, I probably just feel more comfortable when I'm out in the woods or out somewhere that, you know, whatever we call nature or wilderness these days. Um, those are the places that I really like to be. Like, that's that's just where I feel most at home and and most curious, I think, because there's so much stuff out there to see, like so much. And I mean, I I sort of joke with people that you don't want to come on a hike with me because it's like I'm going to stop every 10 meters. Like I'm barely going to make it out of the parking lot and I'm already going to be stopped and poking around in, in the moss. So I just there's I just find there's so much interesting stuff to look at there and that often people people don't stop and look at it. Like I spend so much time out there hiking and stuff and I see all these people just kind of like rip and pass me on the pathway. I'm like, you guys aren't seeing anything. Like you're not seeing anything that's here. And, and, and I think that's really interesting. <laughs> I think it's funny. Um, so I'm the one who's going super slowly and looking at all the, all the tiny little elements that make up that place and then showing them to people because my work is kind of about taking these tiny little things and putting them on a, on a huge scale. So, you know, suddenly something that is like an inch tall, a little clump of moss is now you're looking at it like it's a foot tall. So you can really appreciate all the, all the little details and intricacies of it. Um, I think where most of us who live in cities are so far away from these places now in our day-to-day life, we're so divorced from that kind of reality that um, I don't think we necessarily appreciate the complexity of 
of the ecosystems that that are around us and that's what my work is about is kind of taking all those amazing little details and all those connections and trying to show them to people so so now i get people who you know send me messages on instagram or send me text messages they like send me mushroom photos of whatever they found or they're like you know now i go hiking every time i see some moss i think of you so i guess it's working <laughs> Is that something uh, that comes from your youth or is it just something that's developed over time? It's, uh, <laughs> I guess it's a bit, yeah, I, I think I've, I've always been like this. Like as a kid growing up, we used to do, we used to do a lot of camping and, um, just outdoor, outdoor activities and stuff. Um, and I've also always been really interested in tiny things. Like I, when I was a kid, I got, my parents gave me this book about making plasticine animals and stuff. And, you know, in the book, all the animals are probably like five or six inches tall or whatever. And so I was making them all, but mine are all like teeny tiny, like the size of jelly beans. So I've always been, ever since I was a kid, interested in tiny stuff. So <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, you know what I like is the uh, concept, which yeah, definitely commercial art starts to lose of uh, curiosity and wonder. So yeah, when you describe... those are my two, my two themes. I think <laughs> <laughs> two key words. Truly, truly, they are. That kind of sums up uh, most of what I think my work is about. <laughs> When you bring up the other hikers who are, uh, you know, recording their lap time and trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. I mean, it's not to take away, I, you know, when I've hiked, I definitely don't understand microorganisms, but um, I want to be at uh, either the base or the top of a mountain because, um, uh, you know, my problem is needing to either feel large or small for myself rather than seeing uh, objects around me. Um, it reminds me too how you're speaking. Um, I was watching, I think it was a YouTube video of some artists talking about how uh, doctors say that uh, painters know more about the human anatomy than doctors do, which I think is a fascinating thing. Um, from the, again, the brief experience I've had with your feed, uh, it sounds like you can name species of mushrooms and moss. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I've learned a lot in just sort of doing my, my work, but at the same time, I'm not, I'm not really laser focused in on that kind of stuff. Um, like I think it is kind of funny. I think a lot of the stuff that I do is influenced in some ways by biology and botany, but not to the point where, you know, I'm not taking pictures of something that I don't, you know, know the whole life history of or the you know, I haven't looked at the family relationships between all the different mosses and how they evolved. And so I'm, I'm interested at kind of like probably the level of a interested amateur, but not, not the same way a scientist is. But I think uh, in a lot of ways, it sort of takes the things that scientists have learned and hopefully makes it maybe a little bit more accessible or intriguing to kind of add the average person, like average person like myself and other people just to learn a little bit more about these things. Yeah, I think I read somewhere else about uh, yeah, the rate of urbanization is beyond 80% of the human population. I, I don't know if I said this on the podcast, so I don't know if it's going to be redundant, but I just saw, I, I don't know, I think my son asked me something about uh, the world population. And I think we were talking about COVID, so I was telling about the Black Plague. I'm not a good father. And uh, I, uh, I Googled it, and I think the estimation... Uh, at the time of 0 AD, so the beginning of the Middle Age, uh, the world population was something like 300 million, they, they think, which is hard to comprehend. <laughs> and now we have 
probably, I, I don't know if we're past 8 billion people, but 80% of them live in cities. Um, so I don't know. I mean, is there an element of that context that is intentional or is it intuitive for you? Like, I mean, it sounds like you want to communicate some part of that, that people are literally walking past um, where they come from. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting problem, I think, to think about, especially in a place like Canada, where such a huge number of the people that live here are, you know, really relatively new to this place, like most of us are settlers here. And so we don't have that long intergenerational kind of knowledge about this place. Like, you know, we only have our own lifespans and maybe one or two or maybe three generations back to kind of rely on um, to understand this place. And that's, uh, it's a really big problem, I think, for conservation efforts, because, you know, we don't know what this place used to be like. Our, my parents can't tell me, my grandparents can't really tell me, like, there's nobody in my family or in my culture, really, who can tell me that someone saw with their own eyes how many trees used to be here, you know, stuff like that, how, how things have changed. Like, we're so, we're really far away from that, from that kind of knowledge, most of us. And that makes it, I think it makes it really hard for people to understand uh, what we're doing, like all the changes that we're making and all the all the things that have changed since we've been here. It makes it really hard. Like we only have right now for context. <laughs> so to us, like, you know, whales have always been endangered. <laughs> so it's like to us, it's normal that there's only a few whales. Like that's that's the way it is. So yeah, I think I think encouraging people to be more connected to the the place that we live in is is really important. Yeah, I also think whales are doomed. It's uh, we'll be better off without them. <laughs> 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 you know, just it's I, like I mean, I actually, they take up so much space. Yeah, they're so big. They eat so many of our fish. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on. I actually joke. I joke a lot about this with pandas. I'm like, fuck. They can't exist without humans anymore. Uh, I've seen some documentaries where, you know, every panda is born premature. Their survival rate is like 5% or something. Uh, just let them go. I mean, they're cute. Yeah. But, uh, what's Clearly, the <laughs> they've outlived their usefulness. <laughs> they still have carnivore teeth and all they do is eat plants. It's such a stupid animal. <laughs> all they are now is like a draw for zoos to make money. That's all it is. They're like capitalist bears. Oh, man. <laughs> I'll stand by it. If anyone hears this and wants to argue the uh, purpose of a panda, I'm ready. I'm ready to have that conversation. Uh, whales, on the other hand, I mean, they're interesting. They're, they're as we learn, they're weirder than we want to assume, but uh, more here. They're also a huge carbon storage unit too. Oh, what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, you know, like when you cut down a tree and burn it, you're releasing all this carbon to the air. It's the same thing with like a huge whale. When there used to be so many whales, all uh, a lot of the carbon that's in the atmosphere now. He used to be tied up in these like giant whales. Not anymore. So now and that's another weird thing about me is I like inserting random nature facts into as many discussions as possible. Well, I think I don't know if it's weird. I think it I think it plays very well <laughs> into what I'm learning art practices. Uh, actually, I wrote down um, you know uh, can art actually have an impact in these conversations? And uh, and secondarily, you know, sh should it require this kind of direction? So. You know, I I am not in the let's say environmentalist leaning art world, um, mm -hmm. but you you have your feet in it. So, do you feel like the art 
conversation has a, any impact in this, or have we gone beyond uh, being influenced, let's say, by imagery or by these documentaries? Um, I I think it can. It I mean, it doesn't hurt. I think there's a lot of art that is kind of a gentler way of nudging people to, to sort of think about things. Um, I think one of the things that we've probably learned in the last few decades is that kind of spewing facts at people you know, doesn't doesn't really seem to to have much effect. Like people are just kind of dead to it now. So maybe that's where art can can help or can can be a different way of, of looking at those ideas. But just isn't to say that art has to, you know, be an activist pursuit. There's a lot of art that is really just about the pursuit of beauty or it's an academic pursuit about some really uh, obscure ideas and that's that's great like there's a lot of different reasons to make art but I hope mine makes a bit of a difference like it, I think you have to put all this stuff in perspective like there's really only a few really big famous artists so there's only a few people who are probably achieving any kind of influence on a really global scale but you know the rest of us like pretty much every one of my friends now is like yep I walk a little bit slower now <laughs> so you know, I think that's that's good. Like you, um, it just kind of ripples out, hopefully, and, and makes people a little bit more mindful. Do you have like a little uh, plant artist community, like a Reddit subgroup, or uh, is there like a world uh, in which you guys convene? Oh yeah, there's there's plant art Instagram for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think through my practice and through um, sort of doing residencies and stuff like that, I've. Uh, wound up meeting a lot of people who are interested in um, in this kind of zone of of the world. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of really interesting, really interesting art about about plants. This episode was brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now. During this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Oh, here's a good one for you, I guess. What is your favorite weather and why? Oh, I I like bad weather, I think, because it makes the most amazing, beautiful photos. Um, so I love going to the beach when it's stormy or foggy or being in the forest when it's raining because it smells amazing. Yeah, so I think what I like for weather is what probably what most people think of as bad weather. <laughs> how bad, how bad is still good? <laughs> How bad is still good, as long as it's not going to kill me. <laughs> I, I feel like I, s- I think, I mean, a driving rain where my glasses are covered in water and I can't actually see anymore is probably getting a little too much. But <laughs> as long as I can still kind of function in it, if I'm properly dressed. <laughs> I was going to say, as far, I mean, I was raised and born in a, in Toronto, in a city. So I think my definition of bad weather is different than, as I'm learning, Albertan bad weather. I, I do love living here for that reason, because it's so weird. I mean, today, the day we're recording this, it's like plus 
nine out and two days yeah. ago it's like minus 20 so <laughs> yeah yeah you never know what you'll get here that's for sure